there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. I read every day a little book called Daily Strength for Daily Needs. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this, but it is about a hundred-year-old book, but it is in, it's still in print as far as I know, and it is just about the best daily devotional if you want to read daily devotionals. And I always say, don't read daily devotionals if you don't have time for both the Bible and the devotional. Never use anything as a substitute for the Bible. I try to use both and other things as well. But it happens that today's reading is germane to the things that I wanted to talk about, so I'm going to read it. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And that's from Romans 8.18 and Hebrews 7.16, the power of an endless life. Believest thou in eternal things, thou knowest in thine inmost heart, thou art not clay. Thy soul hath wings, and what thou seest is but part. Make this thy medicine for the smart of every day's distress. Be dumb, in each new loss thou truly art tasting the power of things that come. If we remember that God is not finished with us yet, this is just a tiny segment of our lives. No matter how long we live here on earth, it will not be a second in comparison with eternity. So if we use this as the medicine for whatever happens to be smarting or stinging us today, it should give us joy to think of the glory which shall be revealed. And then this paragraph from E.B. Pusey, and I think I read from him sometime during this weekend, every contradiction of our will, every little ailment, every petty disappointment will, if we take it patiently, become a blessing. And that's another way of expressing my reason for naming my radio broadcast Gateway to Joy. I really do believe that literally every experience, if offered to Jesus, becomes a gateway to joy. So every petty disappointment, if we take it patiently, will become a blessing. So walking on earth, we may be in heaven, the ill tempers of others, the slights and rudenesses of the world, ill health, the daily accidents with which God has mercifully strewed our paths, instead of ruffling or disturbing our peace, may cause his peace to be shed abroad in our hearts abundantly. And the great thing is our response, isn't it, to all of those things which happen to all of us. It's not the event which is going to make a saint out of anybody. Disaster never made a saint out of anybody. It is the response of the believer to God's treatment of him, whatever God allows. And so this morning, in thinking of the last talk on fruit, the fruit of confidence, 
this is the fruit of confidence, but I would want to emphasize that we are meant to be instruments of peace. If we are confident in God, if we have surrendered, in my first talk on Friday night, I gave you a little background of my own experience with the Lord, the surrender that I made at the age of 12, and then the tests that followed that surrender. And then we went on to talk about the foundation of confidence, which is the character of God, and then the enemies of confidence last night. So now, one of the fruits of, con of our confidence in God will be that we will become, wherever we, wherever we are, geographically, socially, in family life, in church, we are meant, every single one of us, is meant to be an instrument of peace. We will never succeed in qualifying to be instruments of peace unless we have accepted God's treatment of us. So let me remind you again of this list of E.B. Pusey's, the ill tempers of others. Have you accepted things which we cannot change? We cannot make an ill-tempered person sweet-tempered. We may pray for them, we may live before them and with them in such a way as to encourage them to be less ill-tempered, but we have to take it when it happens, don't we? And so it is acceptance of the things which we cannot change, the slights and rudenesses of the world, ill health, daily accidents which God has mercifully strewed on our paths, instead of ruffling or disturbing our peace, may cause his peace to be shed abroad in our hearts. And as we respond peacefully and accepta acceptably with wholehearted, deliberate, conscious acceptance of what God allows, we then bring peace. I know some people, a few people, who are the sort who literally seem to bring peace into a room. When my second husband, Addison Leach, was dying of cancer, a very dear friend of ours who happens to be Welsh, she is a medical doctor, but she has never taken the required exams in America in order to practice. So she, she isn't a practicing doctor, but she came every day just of her own free will during those last few weeks of my husband's life. She came every day to the house for about 15 minutes. Now, neither she nor I nor my husband had any idea that she could do anything for him medically, but she brought peace into that room. And my husband was very aware of that, and it was as though he was living each day just for those 15 minutes in which our friend Meyer Walters brought peace into that room. And I could tell you stories of others who are those instruments and have been instruments of God's peace in my own life, but we haven't time for that this morning, but I'm sure that some of you are familiar with the expression instruments of peace as it comes from St. Francis of Assisi, and I just want to tell you a little bit about who he was in case you don't know. He, he lived more than 700 years ago in Italy, and he was um, the son of a very, very wealthy family, by far the wealthiest family in the town of Assisi, and they lived in a castle, I guess it was, it would have been called a manor house or some of some sort. 
and he would be the sole heir of his father's enormous wealth and very well known in the town. And the Lord got a hold of that young man and he decided that God was calling him to a life of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And when friends argued with him and family was outraged and horrified and disappointed by this decision, he was filled with joy knowing that it, it was the voice of God that had spoken to him. And as he brought his conviction to his bishop, the bishop too was not sure that he was making the right choice, but as they talked and prayed about it, it became very clear that it was indeed the voice of God that had called St. Francis. He was, of course, Francis at that time. He's been called a saint since then to this life of poverty and chastity and obedience. And he wanted the poverty to be very real, not just in his imagination. And so he simply turned his back literally on everything material in the things which he would have inherited. And as a literal sign to the whole world, he, he stripped off all his clothes and left them on the cathedral steps and marched singing across the town square and off into the wilderness. And as I think I mentioned the other day, when he was reviled and persecuted and all manner of evil was said against him falsely, he literally danced in the streets. And I think the great turning point in his life was not that one, but not long thereafter, he met a leper. He was riding, Francis was riding a horse at the time, and there was a leper begging beside the road. And to him, that was the most repulsive and horrifying scene. He had never been able to bring himself even to look at a leper, let alone to do anything for him. And he, at this point, he got down off his horse and went over and kissed the leper on the mouth a sign of his utter surrender and self-giving. And it is his prayer that I would like us particularly to consider this morning because it is a prayer that I have framed on the wall of my study. It's a prayer that I try to use very often, asking God to make me an instrument of his peace. And these are the words, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is sadness, joy. Where there is darkness, light. And the second part, I think, is probably very important, particularly important for us, in today's world of such selfishness. He says, O Divine Master, grant that I may seek not so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. So let's think about that, and I hope that there may be some of you today who will really want to make that 
your own prayer, an instrument of peace. Now, what is an instrument? An instrument is something that does not act of itself ever independently. An instrument is something for the use of somebody else. And it is never autonomous. It never says, I'm going to do my own thing. It's made for a particular thing, and that is what it is used for, and it is absolutely useless until it is in the hand of the master. I was very interested yesterday to be talking with a man who knows how to run heavy equipment. And when I see those unbelievably huge machines on the roads, I just cannot imagine that one single man can be up there at the controls. He knows what to do with all of those complicated things. And it is a huge and, to me, apparently totally unmanageable instrument. But in the hand of somebody that knows how to use it, it can do exactly what it's meant to do. I think of, as a small child, how I, was, I suffered a great deal in the first few years of my life, first seven or eight years, having terrible earaches. And those were the days when doctors actually came to the house. And my sister-in-law, Joyce, tells me that there still are some doctors in Wyoming that pay house calls, which I find almost unbelievable. But this doctor would literally come up the stairs and into the bedroom with his little black bag, and he would take out some instruments. But the first thing that he did was to put a piece of gauze over my nose with chloroform on it. And then he would ask me to raise my hand and keep it up as long as I could and to repeat each number after him. And then he would start counting one, and I would say one, and two, two. And I would hold my hand up as long as I could. About, about the time I got to five, my hand would begin to drop. And I would, he would say five, and I would say five, and then he would say six, and I might say six, and usually before I got, he got to eight or ten, I was out, out of it. The chloroform had taken its effect, and then he would go to work with his instrument. Now, that instrument was a sharp scalpel, which if he hadn't given me the chloroform would have been horribly painful, and I would wake up with a pain, but not nearly as bad as the pain that I'd had. He lanced, had lanced my ear, and that instrument became an instrument of peace for me. And there are times when, as God's instruments, we have to cause pain in somebody, but ultimately that brings peace. And the instrument is not only not independent, but it always lies at the hand of the master, ready to be taken up for the master's purpose. Do you pray, Lord, make me an instrument? of your peace, that means that we are ready, willing, totally at his orders to do what he says. Submit to the will of the operator and the owner. It is, I am not my own. I have no agenda of my own. The prayer of Betty Scott Stam was, I give up all my own plans and purposes, and accept thy will for my life. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Now, I am never going to be an instrument of peace if I haven't got a peaceful heart. How many people do you know who really seem, who really appear to have a peaceful heart? 
There isn't a whole lot of that in the world, is there? There's not, not a whole lot of peace. And what little peace there is, is the, the kind usually that only the world gives. And Jesus said, I want to give you another kind of peace, not as the world giveth. In a book by Rumor Godden, she describes a monastery whose motto was just the one Latin word, pax, P-A-X, which means peace. And that motto was set in a crown of thorns. The logo for the monastery was this word, peace, set in a crown of thorns. And so this is what she says about that. The motto was peace, but the word was set in a circle of thorns. Peace, but what a strange peace, made of unremitting toil and effort, seldom with a seen result, subject to constant interruptions, unexpected demands, short sleep at night, little comfort, sometimes scant food, speaking, of course, of the peace of Jesus, beset with disappointments and usually misunderstood, yet peace all the same, undeviating, filled with joy and gratitude and love. It is my own peace I give unto you, said Jesus, not, notice, the world's peace. If you would ask the world, where do you find peace? I suppose 99% would, would answer in getting away from it all, in finding some quiet place, in having a vacation, in getting away from work. That's the kind of peace the world gives, and it's my observation. My husband and I travel so much, and we have the opportunity to watch the exhausted, harried, harassed, helpless parents at the end of their rope with a string of children trying to have fun, you know, trying to go someplace. It just breaks my heart to see the mobs that are on the way. Every time we take a flight to Florida, there's all these mobs of families heading for Disneyland, Disney World. And you just think of how exhausting it must be that they've used up their vacation in that way. Now, you live in an area where you don't need to get nearly so exhausted because you have all this beauty around you. But I would think that the efforts at camping would, see, would seem to be very exhausting. I can't imagine doing all that, <laughs> pitching tents and all the rest of it. Anyway, I'm sure you get the point that there is a great difference between the kind of peace that Jesus gives that has no relationship whatsoever to our circumstances. Peace in the middle of all these things that Rumor Godden lists, as Jesus had in his life. When did he take a vacation? When did he have the world's peace. He did go off by himself, and he saw to it that his disciples came away. He said, if you don't, well, somebody has said, if you don't come apart, then you're going to come apart. And Jesus told them to come apart with him. But he says, you who are tired and overburdened, come to me. Come to me, and I will give you rest. And there are three conditions to receiving the kind of rest and peace that Jesus wants to give. And the first is that you have to come. The second is that you have to take his yoke. And I picture the old-fashioned wooden yoke that was used for two oxen. That's the picture that I have in my mind of the, of the yoke that Jesus is talking about because it's his yoke. He says, take my yoke upon you. And I think that the yoke that Jesus is talking about 
is the will of the Father. He has bowed his neck under the will of the Father. He came, he said, not to do his own will, but to do the will of the Father. And he said, not my will, but thine be done. So if we are prepared to receive the rest that Jesus alone can give to us, it means that we have to bend our necks as well under the yoke of the Father. Take my yoke upon you. That's the second condition. And the third is learn of me. And what do we have to learn? Something that doesn't come natural to any of us. To be gentle and humble in heart. Meek does not mean weak. Don't ever confuse meekness with weakness. Do you know who the meekest man in the Bible is, according to the Bible? I think I heard somebody say it. Moses. The Bible says Moses was the meekest man who ever lived. And I think very few of us would picture Moses as a weak man. Michelangelo certainly didn't. Images of tremendous power in his paintings and his sculptures. A man of masculinity, power, anger, but meek. You remember then when that mixed company of strangers came in and started challenging Moses about his having taken authority over them. They said, who do you think you are? Uh, trying to tell us that you have the word of God. And Moses was meek enough not to argue with the men. He simply said, you meet me here tomorrow morning and we'll ask the Lord about this. And you may remember that it was the sons of Korah who came. They met him there the next morning and the ground opened up and swallowed them. It was a pretty uh, loud and clear message. Pretty, It was a show and tell as to who was indeed in charge. But meekness, I think, means teachability. An openness, a willingness to be shown what we need to, t to learn. It means reverence. It means love. I told you about Mrs. Kershaw last night. To me, she is the personification of meekness. Cheerful, sweet, teachable, ready to do anything, ready to be used as an instrument of peace for the whole family. If we are going to be instruments of peace, we not only have to have a peaceful heart, but we have to be lovers. And love is an absolute point of departure. We're not talking about the world's definition of love, falling in love and feeling good about somebody. It has nothing to do with feeling good about anybody. I'm sure that St. Francis didn't feel good about that leper. That had nothing to do with it. It was an absolute departure. It was a point of departure from himself, from his own feelings, from his attitudes, and a reaching out with the love of Jesus toward that man, a radical abandonment of my viewpoint. I don't know about the rest of you. I don't know any intimate stories of your marriage. But as a woman who has had to learn some tough lessons in submission to three different men, again and again, the Lord is saying to me, this is a radical abandonment of your viewpoint. You are going to have to accept Lars's viewpoint on this thing. And the word submission, ladies, never has any teeth in it whatsoever until I think my husband is wrong. Right? 
Have you ever had any problem with submission when you both want to go to the same movie or go and eat in the same restaurant? No problem whatsoever, is it? It's only when that radical point of departure is reached and that willingness to abandon my viewpoint, my mindset, my urge, and especially, now we're not just talking about husbands, we're talking about all of us, when we want to receive sympathy and consolation for ourselves, that's the time when we need to practice the second half of that prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Teach me, Lord, not so much to be consoled as to console. I must reach out in love. Where there is hatred, what is my response? Let me so love. Where there is injury, and injury is real, isn't it? It is wrong. It hurts. Perhaps somebody has ruined your business to the point where you will never be able to recover. That is, humanly speaking, unforgivable. If somebody, if a man has left his wife, dumped his wife and children, and is not paying child support, and I hear case after case after case like this, what is, what is that woman's attitude to be toward him? Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, let me sow faith. Where there is despair, let me sow hope. Where there is darkness, let me sow light. Where there is sadness, let me sow joy. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And self-giving is an absolute point of departure, a radical abandonment of my own viewpoint. Where there is despair, hope. And people so often say, but I can't do that. I cannot forgive him. I cannot forgive that awful woman for what she did to me. A young woman called me up one day and she said, Elizabeth, you've got to help me. She said, I don't know what to do. She said, this woman has just called me up and asked me to be a godmother to her daughter. And she said, the cheek, the brass of her asking me to be godmother to her daughter after what she did to me. And she proceeded to tell a long and sad story about how this she and her husband had been best friends with this couple, and that woman had done something absolutely unforgivable. She said, we haven't spoken to each other for four years, and she calls me up and says, would I be godmother to her daughter? What should I do? Well, I said, I can't tell you whether you're supposed to be goddaughter, godmother to her daughter, but I can tell you what you're supposed to do toward her. And she said, what's that? Well, I said, you have to forgive her. And she said, after what she did to me? And she went over the story again. I said, now, wait a minute. I said, you're a good Catholic, aren't you? And she said, yes. And I said, you know what the Our Father says. That's what the Catholics call the Lord's Prayer. She said, well, what does it say about that? Forgive us our trespasses. How? And she rattled it off as we forgive those who trespass against us. What's that got to do with anything? <laughs> oh, I said, you are... You have already told God that you will accept the measure of forgiveness from him for all the things that you've done against him that you are willing to meet out to this friend of yours. How much is that? She said, wait a minute, would you run that by again? Well, I said, let's think of the words. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who ruined us. 
who walked all over us. Now, when I was a little kid, we had to, all through our growing up years at home, we said the Lord's Prayer every single day. We got down on our knees in the living room on the rug, and we listened to our Father pray, and then we all joined, as he said, and we asked these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, and we all began. And we rattled it off, and I don't suppose any of us, except maybe my brother Jim, really thought about those words. I certainly didn't. We just rattled it off. But I used to stumble over the word trespasses because I thought it meant walking on people's grass. Because back in those days, there would be little signs on people's grass that said no trespassing. And I was a good little girl, and I never walked on anybody's grass. So I didn't see why I had to say that all the time. Well, of course, it was years before I ever asked my father, what in the world does trespasses mean? And then I found out. So there was a dead silence on the other end of the phone when I reminded this woman that she was, she was accepting from God. She was telling God, I will take from you the measure of forgiveness and no more than I have been willing to offer to this terrible woman. And Jesus said, after giving those words, when his disciples had asked him to teach them to pray, if you don't forgive your brother from your heart, neither will I forgive you. And she said, is that what the Bible says? And I said, yes. She said, I don't think I can do that. And I said, you're right. You can't do that except by grace. This whole weekend, we've been talking about things we can't do by ourselves. But there is grace, and there is revelation, and there is grace that is greater than all our sin, and grace that is totally sufficient for all our needs. And what God tells us to do, it is possible to do. It is always possible to do the will of God. Now, a few months ago, I happened to turn on the TV just at an electrifying moment. I didn't know what I was looking at, but when I switched it on, here was the face of a very earnest-looking young man looking straight into the camera, and this was on one of the major networks. This was not a Christian station. And he, he was saying, just as I switched it on, I forgive them. Whereupon the camera went to an audience, and a woman jumped up in the middle, middle of the audience. She said, that's sick. You forgive them for what they did to you? She said, that's condoning it. That's codependency. She said, what they did to you was terrible. She said, if you pardon them for that, you're saying it's okay. And the host of the show, whose name I don't think I need to mention, turned then to this woman who had jumped up and she and he said but isn't that what Jesus told us we're supposed to do forgive our enemies she said look I don't care what Jesus said about it she said that's crazy that's sick and she turned again to the young man she said you must have a head injury you got to be crazy well it began to dawn on me that I was looking at Reginald Denny who was the trucker who had been beaten to a bloody pulp during the L.A. riots. And Reginald Denny stood there perfectly composed, perfectly simple and humble, and he said, I forgive them 
Because that is what Jesus told us to do. He said, what else can I do? Whereupon, the camera then went to a beautiful black woman who turned out to be the mother of the man who had beaten Reginald Denny. And she said, I would like these people in the audience to know that there's some of us who understand what Mr. Denny is saying because we're Christians. And what my son did to this man was wrong, and he deserves to be punished. She said, I will never forget the day in court when the judgment was given, and Mr. Denny came over with his hand outstretched to shake my hand, and she said, in two seconds, we were in each other's arms. He is my brother in Christ. Can you imagine? Can you forgive? Well, when my friend, my friend Barb Tompkins, who is a wise and wonderful woman, when her children say, I can't, she says, when people say they can't, they usually mean they won't. And isn't that true? It is always possible to do the will of God. And lastly, if we are going to be instruments of peace, we need not only a peaceful heart and love, which is an absolute point of departure, a radical abandonment of our own viewpoint and our rights and our reasonings and our mindset, but we need a divine generosity which flings self to the winds. And all self-pampering, a recklessness, the gift of self-offering. And that's what I saw in that man, Reginald Denny. And before the program was over, another man in the audience jumped up and he said, well, he says, I'm a trucker too. He said, I have a question. He said, why did you stop? You didn't have to stop that truck and open the door. And Denny said, well, he said, I could have kept on going. And he said, I could have done a lot of damage with 80,000 pounds. But there were people in the street. And the guy said, yeah. He said, but you've got a club in the cab, haven't you? He said, we've all got a club in the cab. And Denny says, yeah, I have a club in the cab. It's meant for testing tires. It's not meant for clubbing people. A divine generosity which flings to the winds all self-pampering. He risked his life, and he just about lost it, didn't he? Another example of that generosity, the grace that God pours out to those who are willing to be those instruments, is Corrie ten Boom, and I'm sure many of you know that story. She was speaking many years after her experience in the concentration camp, she was speaking in Germany when she saw in the audience the guard who had been responsible for the death of her sister Betsy. And she was horrified at the end of the meeting to see that man coming down the aisle with outstretched hand. And she said, I sent up an SOS to the Lord. I couldn't possibly shake his hand, the man who had caused the death of my sister. And she said, but as I sent up the SOS, my hand shot out, and in that split second, the Lord gave me the grace, and that man was forgiven. And, of course, she shook his hand and then found out that he was a Christian now and had come forth 
to ask her forgiveness. But she had forgiven him before he asked. Now, there are many times when the person who has hurt us the most is perhaps not even aware that they have hurt us or they don't care and they're not asking forgiveness. Remember what Jesus said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who apologize. Doesn't say that, does he? As we forgive those who trespass against us. And trespassing doesn't just mean walking on the grass. It might mean walking all over you. And somebody doesn't give two hoots that they've walked all over you. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who walked all over us. That takes divine generosity. It's true, we can't do it. But God will give us the grace. And my brother Phil, who was a missionary for many years in Northwest Territory, had the experience of total hostility from the Indians where he first went to work. They had absolutely no faith in any white man because they had never received anything but wrong at the hands of any white man they'd ever known. And so, of course, they weren't going to trust this new missionary. And it took Phil years of slogging work and earnest prayer. And he and his wife had to build their log cabin together, his little tiny wife from North Carolina, who certainly had never seen anything like the temperatures that there were in Northwest Territory. And again and again, he would think that he was making a little progress. But anyway, it took years before he gained the confidence of the Indians. When he finally did, there was progress. They began to help him with the learning of the language. He wanted to reduce the language to writing and translate the Bible and, of course, give them the gospel. And when this had begun, the Canadian government sent a teacher into that area. And the teacher, whose name was John, found that the Indians were totally hostile toward him. They had no faith in him and would have nothing to do with him. And he realized that Phil had the Indians' confidence. And, of course, he was very jealous. But he had a powerful weapon in his hands. The Canadian government sent all the welfare checks for the Indians to John, the teacher. So John simply made it known among the Indians that no Indian would receive his welfare check who had anything to do with Phil Howard. Well, now, how do you suppose Phil felt about that? All that work of his apparently down the drain, all that confidence gained, the Indians just faded off into the forest. He couldn't get them even to sell him wood. He couldn't get them to help him cut wood. He couldn't get them to come and work on the translation. They wouldn't come to the meetings anymore. He was devastated. And all because of this man, John. Well, he was on his knees one day praying, and he said, I realized my prayers were bouncing back from the ceiling. And I said, Lord, what's wrong? And he said, I opened my Bible. And there it was, the verse, pray, love your enemies, pray for those who hate you, do good to those who despitefully use you. Well, he said, I can pray for John. I can't love him. You're going to have to do that through me, Lord. And I'm willing to do good to him if you'll show me what in the world I can do. Well, it wasn't very long after that that he looked out of the window, and here was John desperately trying to get his boat out of the water. The breakup, the ice was about to come in, and of course if the boat was locked into the ice for the winter, it would have been smashed to bits 
during the breakup of the summer. So Phil rushed to the river and said, hold on, John. He said, I've got a winch. My son and I will come down and help you. All the Indians happened to be away on a hunting trip that time, and so John didn't have anybody to help him. So Phil helped him get that boat out of the water. And wouldn't it be wonderful if I could tell you that everything changed between John and Phil? That wasn't the way it worked, but God was working, and for some reason the Canadian government removed John to another area, and Phil expected he would never see him again. Lo and behold, he bumped into him on the street in Edmonton one day. And John said, Phil, I want you to know that what you and your son did for me that day changed my life. And if I ever have a chance to go back to Nahanni, I want to go with you. And I want to tell the Indians that I was wrong and you were right. Sometimes God does things like that, doesn't he? Not always. You may go through the rest of your life forgiving somebody who will never care. And let me just put in a little caution here. I would not recommend that you go up to somebody who has not apologized, who has never given any indication that they even realize what they've done. I wouldn't go up and say, you know, I've hated you for the last five years, but I just want you to know that I'm forgiving you now. <laughs> Probably they don't want that. You can let the forgiveness be a silent, private transaction between you and God, and you will then be freed. A peaceful heart, the love which gives up its right to itself, and a divine generosity which reaches out in forgiveness. Now I'm going to repeat the prayer slowly in my close. If you can say it honestly, please say it silently. If you can't say it honestly, please don't. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is sadness, joy. Where there is darkness, light. O Divine Master, grant that I may seek not so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. For Jesus' sake, amen. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>